Do you ever feel like you're in a never-ending cycle of snacks and meals? We get it. That's why we're excited to share Home Threads, the ultimate solution for creating a stylish and functional family space. At HomeThreads.com, discover furniture that can handle the chaos of family life. From wipeable dining chairs to kitchen tables and light fixtures. Or you can just freshen up your kitchen with trays, counter lamps, decor, and other affordable accents that will help you update your kitchen into a room you love spending time in. Head over to HomeThreads.com slash D-I-J-F-Y, short for Dinner and I Just Feed You, to get a code for 15% off your first order. Because if you're going to be feeding them three times a day, plus snacks, you deserve a home that feeds your style. HomeThreads, love where you live. That's HomeThreads.com backslash D-I-J-F-Y today to get 15% off your first order. Today's episode is brought to you by One Potato, the only organic meal kit delivery service specifically designed for families. Each week, One Potato delivers semi-prepared ingredients to make meals that both kids and parents love in no time flat, along with tips on how to encourage kids to try new foods. To learn more, visit OnePotato.com. There's nothing written out there that lunch has to be a sandwich or a wrap or, you know, something in a thermos. You can totally make a mishmash of whatever it is that you have on hand and call that lunch. Hey, I'm Stacy, And I'm Megan. And this is Didn't I Just Feed You, a podcast about feeding families because, man, kids need to eat a lot. And so frequently, too. This week, we're bringing you the third part in our school lunch series, and we have a bunch of interviews to jump into. So we're going to skip our What We're Digging segment and dive right into three interviews, starting with Heather McKay. Yeah, because we are digging these ladies. Megan, wasn't talking to them so much fun? It was the highlight of my summer before school started, and it got me really excited about school lunch. Well, I'm glad it got you really excited about school lunch. It got me excited to talk to you guys about school lunch, because <laughs> <laughs> I'm going on vacation tomorrow. Woo-hoo. So peace out. I don't have and school until September 5th. And I'm starting school next week. I know. Or my kids are starting school next week. So I'll be right in the thick of school lunch with everyone else. Yeah, that's right. And actually, week. I was just in New Orleans visiting my new nephew, Connor, Ooh. who's the cutest thing ever. And Congratulations. yeah, like all the kids there, school, started school. school. So was helping a little bit with school lunch over there, but now I get to go on vacation. But you guys get to listen to this fantastic episode about school lunch. So much help from such a wide range of guests. Our first is Heather McKay, who was a second grade teacher for 14 years. And actually, full disclosure, she was Oliver, my little one's second grade teacher last year. (laughs) She's the best. (laughs) Um, But she is currently working as the language arts coordinator at our school. She lives in Brooklyn, New York with her husband, and she has a three and a six-year-old. She loves to cook and try new recipes, and she is on a quest, like all of us, Heather, to find meals that bring stellar reviews, or, you know, at least minimal complaints (laughs) from the kids. (laughs) Loved talking to Heather. Hi, Heather. Thank you so much for being with us here on Didn't I Just Feed You? Hi, thank you for having me. We are so, so excited to have your perspective, because not only are you a mom, but you are a teacher and this has come up in so many of our conversations because for us parents, packing school lunch is this thing that we do and then our kids go off to school and then it's like a black hole. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, what 
happens. Right. <laughs> so why don't you start by telling us how old your kids are and what grade you teach currently and if you've taught other grades? So my children are three and six and they both go to school and I have to pack lunches for both of them. So I have that perspective too. Yes. <laughs> um, and then I have taught second grade for the past 14 years. Um, and because of the way we do our do lunch at our school, I often spend lunch with my students <laughs> um, eating together. So I have seen many school lunches and um, many different approaches to eating school lunch and that sort of thing. <laughs> are there different categories of eaters? There definitely are. And it's, you know, there's the kids who like relish their lunch. They love eating. They're excited to see their lunch, open their lunch box. Um, and you can, I have students who come with napkins that they open up and create like an entire picnic for themselves <laughs> every single day. And I can tell you that I personally don't do that with my lunch, but it's wonderful to watch. And they just, it's a really special time for them. And then I have the other students for like free time is after this. What do I have to eat so that it's possible? And I can get to this, you know, Lego creation or what, or block creation or whatever it is I want to do, this game I want to play with my friends or this book I really want to finish. Uh, and I'm just going to eat as, as much as I have to and get through this thing that I have to do called lunch. And then there's everything in between as well. There are students who are frequently dissatisfied with their lunch. And I, <laughs> and I, you know, before I was a parent, I was like, gosh, why is it like, why is it this child is not happy with their lunch? Like they, they need to communicate about this. And I, and I do still have kids write notes on post-its saying like, I did not like the salmon. <laughs> that was not good. Please don't send it again. We talk about how to politely convince somebody to, you know, listen to your opinion, your feelings about your lunch. And then I became a parent though. And although I still encourage the note writing, because I personally as a parent would like that, I was kind of like, gosh, this kid is so picky. This must be so hard for this parent. And I actually have a person who is very selective about her lunch, her lunch items. So I really empathize with those parents now. So my perspective has really shifted I over the years. I love how you use the word selective. Yes. <laughs> Megan and I talk about that a lot. Picky is such a popular word and I get it. It's a good shorthand, but every once in a while I switch and I'm like, no, they're just selective eaters. Right. That's all. <laughs> you bring up a really interesting point about how there are all these different kinds of eaters. Mm-hmm. And I think that the conversation that parents have when they're like, oh, I mean, when people come to Megan and I about like, give us tips on how to do school lunch. You know, we talk so often when it comes to general cooking advice or dinner advice that there are no one size fits all solutions, but it would be good to know more about what kind of eater your kid is mm -hmm. so that you can just think about like what works for them and move on and not stress out a bit, you know? Yeah. Like if your kid is that kid who's just super active and wants to get to recess, then just pack the minimum or, you know, don't worry about packing a humongous lunch. Right. If they're not going to eat tons of food, you know, not every kid wants a huge meal at lunch. Mm -hmm. um, and in general, do you find that parents are packing too much food? 
Because that's something else that we were talking about. Yeah, that does happen sometimes. They'll eat half the sandwich. They'll eat a lot of unfinished apples. There are a lot of unfinished <laughs> apples out there. And, and then I found out from my child's teacher that she wasn't finishing her apple. <laughs> and also because we now compost at our school, which is wonderful, kids are like, well, it's going in the compost. I was like, no, you need it. I want you to send that apple home. Like I want somebody to see. And I will say that when children are younger, I've noticed that, that the teachers will really make sure that what's left comes back. Like in my son's preschool, what's left comes back so that I see what he ate. We're not as good about that in elementary school. And so I think that can be tricky too. And I find myself like quizzing my daughter. But I was like, I was shocked when the teacher was like, oh, she was composting an apple and there were only two bites. Also, I think that it can be, I mean, we really try to give them a lot of time. And in my classroom, we even have five minutes. In a lot of the other classrooms at our school, we have five minutes of quiet just so that they eat and don't talk because I, like a lot of kids don't eat when they talk very much. And so if they're very chatty, that can be tricky. But in every situation, it's a range. So I think that advice of paying attention to what they're eating at home, if they only eat half a sandwich at home, is a really good barometer for what they're going to eat at school. Because if anything, they probably will eat less than they do at home because there's more sort of social things going on of chatting with other students and going to have a little time to play or read or draw afterwards. And all of those enticing things can make them want to just get the eating done and and get to the next thing. I have a question about how famished kids are at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And this is something else that like every parent is like, oh my gosh, by the time they walk out of the school building, they are starving. Do you feel like the that kids are getting enough food to get them through the day? I mean, is it enough? Is it natural and good and fine that they're that hungry at the end of the day? Or are they petering out? I think at the end of the day, it's a combination of being hungry and just kind of like, you know, saturated because they've been learning all day and they've been interacting with people all day and that can make them just like really ready for a snack. I mean, I even feel that way as as a teacher at the end of the day, <laughs> um, they, we really push them to have some time to eat because, and we talk to them about needing energy for the rest of the day. And so I do think that, that lunch does fill them up and get them through. I don't have students complaining about being hungry at the end of the day. However, um, I think when they reach that point where all of the activities are done, they probably are starving. And because they're small and they're growing really fast and they're zipping around and they often have physical activity in the afternoon, they probably are pretty ready for a snack. Just like at 10, when we have snack in our classroom, they're ready for that snack. They're really ready to eat. So I think part of it is just sort of the natural cycle of things. They burned off that lunch and they are ready for a snack. I want to get back to this idea of thinking of yourself as a resource mm-hmm. because I know, you know, parents probably come to you for so much. Yeah. <laughs> it can probably be a little overwhelming. I'm sure parents are a little bit needy, but do you think it would be useful for parents who are feeling anxious about like school lunch and whether their kids are getting enough and you know, if they have any concerns, do you think that, you know, you or teachers in general can be helpful to give just a couple of quick guidelines? Like, 
here's what our school lunch looks like in our school or in our classroom. This is a good guideline for an amount. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think that would be like a good tip for parents? I think so. I mean, you know, coming from both the perspective of a parent and a teacher, I think so. And I think that um, sometimes as teachers, we are so busy, we don't always think about like, oh, you're right. We do have this unique perspective. (laughs) And um, yeah, just a few sort of tips of like, well, we have about 25 minutes to eat. Um, Just so you know, there's free time afterwards. So you might speak to your child about what they're going to eat first and let us know if they're coming home, you know, really hungry or with things in their lunch or telling you they didn't like it. Um, but yeah, I, that's so true that we probably do, it would probably be helpful to give a little more transparency and that that would not be um, a huge task for teachers at all because it's simply what we see each day. And I don't see 21 lunches as they're being packed up, but I definitely sort of know the trends of what kids typically do. Like they typically eat for about 20 minutes and not much more. Um, some kids eat in 10. And I've definitely had some parents reach out to me and be like, I just don't think they're eating and I don't know what to do. And sometimes they'll say, you know, I'm trying to put in healthy things, but I think I'm just going to put in these things because I want them to eat something. You know, <laughs> So we've yeah. definitely had those conversations, but I think that sort of that general conversation with um, parents and sort of giving them a, them a sense of what we see is, is helpful. Yeah, I, that's that's what we were thinking. And it's funny that it had never even occurred to us <laughs> to ask our teachers about it. Mm-hmm. And it's something that parents struggle with so much. It's like the big joke of going back to school, like, oh, I have to pack school lunches. Right. Which brings me to you as a parent. <laughs> Is that how you feel about school lunch? <laughs> Is it a task that you hate or do you kind of enjoy it? I have mixed feelings about it. (laughs) My son, who's only three, really likes a range of things. And he's like, hey, put a cheese quesadilla in today. Put a this and that. My daughter is like, everything was too wet. You know? (laughs) I don't know how to get around that. Um, so, So, you know, there's sort of this like, oh, it's going to be so fun to put these things together. And then also this, this feeling of dread of like, oh my goodness, am I just going to be packing you with the exact four things for the rest of your life? Will you ever be trying something new? So it's, you know, it's a mix. And I imagine that's the case for all parents. And I, I do find myself sometimes asking questions about lunches or like having that revelation of someone who is covering lunch saying she threw out her entire apple. I was like, what? It's sort of a mix. And I, um, you know, I'm always sort of trying to figure out like, I really sit down the night before and really think about it. Some mornings were just rushed. Sometimes my husband does it. It's hard. And when they come back full of food, it really is very frustrating. Or when you pick them up and they're starving and you're like, but I put all these healthy things in there for you to fill you up. Why are you so hungry? Um, and it's tricky. And then sometimes they're just growing. So I think, well, I just can't feed you enough right now. <laughs> yeah. That's true. I think that's such a good point that, you know, so much of this in general, not just with school lunch, is just letting go mm-hmm. <laughs> and knowing that if we are giving them options, 
putting mostly healthy foods on their plates, not stressing too much around food so that we're giving them room to develop a healthy relationship with food, you know, and giving them the information and choices that they need. Mm -hmm. They're going to go through a million different phases. They're going to like things. They're going to not like things. They're going to go through phases where they're not hungry. Mm -hmm. And then they're going to go through phases where they're going to power through food. And like, we just can't keep up because they're growing so fast. Yeah. And like, you know, we're just not going to be able to pivot at the same pace (laughs) because there's no sign that says, okay, I'm about to pivot now. And it just is what it is. And I, you know, we just stay steady through it all. It's frustrating, but I feel like that's our job when it comes to feeding them. It's so true. And they're, and they're, as we've all mentioned, our children are different, you know, and they're, they have different needs at different times and they're changing so much more rapidly than we as adults are. And so it's sometimes I find as an adult, it's hard to remember that, you know, that what you liked for lunch last year might not be the thing that you want for lunch or what you were able to eat at this time might not be what you feel like eating this, you know, three months later. And so yet you do kind of have to roll with it a little bit. This has been so great. I love having your perspective as both a parent and a teacher. I'm so, so glad we found the time to talk. Me too. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you for being with us. And after Heather, we spoke with Laura Fuentes, who's the CEO of Fuentes Media and founder of Mama Bowls and a lifestyle entrepreneur. She nerds out on content and email acquisition strategies, something we know nothing about. (laughs) (laughs) But she helps moms live their best life with fresh recipes and practical advice on health and wellness from a working mom. This includes her own take on juggling work, travel, kids, homeschooling, and still managing to get dinner on the table every night. And we spoke specifically with Laura about how to handle food allergies and school lunches and food allergies in the classroom. She had a lot of really great advice and tons of great recipes to link to. Yeah, allergies is one of her areas of expertise. It was so helpful to hear, even as a parent of kids who doesn't have food allergies. So let's switch gears and talk a little bit about when you're packing lunch for a kid with food allergies, because I know you're contending with some food allergies in your home, not necessarily the kind where you have to worry about it for the classroom. Yeah, but for my kid. Right. But for your kid, you know, the same way that for a long time I had to pack dairy-free lunches for Isaac. Um, It can get really tricky, especially for parents who are just adjusting. Mm -hmm. Yes. When you first find out, you know, your kid can't eat gluten or your kid can't eat dairy, it can be a very overwhelming time. How I felt when Isaac first was told he couldn't eat dairy, at dinner time, it felt like I had so many more options and I had so much more room to kind of figure it out. School lunch felt like this constrained, time and space and limited amount of food. And I was like, ah, like, well, what do I pack? Like, I just felt very overwhelmed by it. Right. And so in my case, it was gluten for many years with my son and now he can tolerate it. Um, And then my other son was dairy as well. And it kind of still kind of cut it back. Yeah. So you just sort of have to try these things out. But um, so if you're not, if you if you just basically found out recently um, your child has some type of allergy or sensitivity and you have to eliminate a whole food group, 
completely. My biggest advice would be pick that one thing that your child really loves, whether if it's a sandwich, like if you're like, oh my gosh, I've had like my sandwich eater for years, now what? So your job, and I tell parents, like, don't wait till, try to do this over the summer when things are more relaxed. But, you know, uh, if you're listening and we're already during the school year, just over a Friday, try it out over a weekend, go buy, replace that one go-to item. So if it's a sandwich, go find a couple of different uh, gluten-free bread alternatives um, and buy two or three loaves. So you can figure out which one is your is best inside of a lunchbox. Like if you've tried gluten-free bread, they're not all the same. Some totally dry out by lunch and they're disgusting. Others are that that loaf of bread is really great toasted. So it makes a great breakfast type of toast. Some of them are great for things like uh, French toast or breakfast items. So like really not all gluten-free alternatives are tasty and it's sad that they're still for sale. Again, if you're if you go to Target, they have a great gluten-free brand there in the fresh area, but don't get the frozen one. Again, it's all about testing. So the first thing I would replace is your sandwich bread because that's like your has probably been your go-to item forever. Um, and then incorporate other things that don't build around gluten. Look at all the things that you can have that are out there, right? There's pasta that's gluten-free. Okay, I will tell you a brand that I absolutely love. It's Barilla Pasta. The gluten-free line is amazing. It tastes like regular pasta. And that's what we eat at my house. And no, they're not paying me to tell you this. But it is after years of mushy, disgusting, gluten-free rice pasta. Like this one is really good. But I try to honestly focus on the things that are naturally gluten-free and just throw those in the lunchbox. I love that because, you know, uh, years ago, I managed a writer who was doing an extensive interview with Shauna Ahern of um, Gluten-Free Girl, who's, you know, fabulous and one of the first big writers who really tackled this online, you know, going gluten-free. And her big piece of advice when we asked her, what do you do when you find out your kid has to go gluten-free was just focus on what you can eat instead of what you can't. A hundred percent. It's not, and you know, I get a lot of emails from parents that freak out about, oh my gosh, I'm just so overwhelmed, no dairy. You know, and sometimes like we're talking gluten and dairy, but a lot of parents are really get a long list, like no gluten, no dairy, yeah. no eggs, no nightshades. Yeah. So again, you know, and the good news is that there's some pretty awesome lists out on the internet about the, what you, the cans and can't. So I would tell you just to print out those lists, you know, that are, you know, specific. And if if you're usually doctors give you a printout, the doctor's office, look at that and then really try to find um, ideas with very minimal basic ingredients that your child can eat in a short amount of time at lunch. You know, it's totally okay to not pack a sandwich and just to pack a variety of mishmash of things, you know, hard-boiled eggs, some fruit, veggies, some hummus, or some other dip, and then, you know, a couple energy balls and call that lunch. Like there's nothing, not, there's nothing written out there that lunch has to be a sandwich or a wrap or, you know, something in a thermos. You can totally, literally like make a mishmash of whatever it is that you have on hand and call that lunch. Okay, but I'm going to have a let's get real moment for a second, (laughs) because 
I do think that the reason why sandwiches became so popular is because you can make them one, two, three in the morning, no prep. So in reality, is packing lunches the way you're talking about? Does it require a little bit of prep work? And do you do prep work for this? Uh, you betcha. So okay. let me just say. <laughs> Thank you for your honesty. I mean. It's the real deal, folks. Listen to me. Okay. I, a few times a week, I get up really, really early in the morning and I leave my house at 4.30. Uh, I leave at 4 to 5. I leave. I get up at 4.30. Right, you're killing me. I know. But listen, with this, what I'm telling you is not because I'm, I, I am super mom. No, 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 no. Is because the reality is that it requires my husband to put the food in a lunchbox, right? Mm -hmm. So I can't, I I love him and he does a really great job in the morning, but making lunches, it is not his thing. So I- I was like, we're all on the edge of our seat. Yeah. He has to put food in a lunchbox? (laughs) Yeah, no, I literally leave, I put the lunchboxes with the food in it in the refrigerator the night before. So let me answer your question. Yes, it requires some prep work, okay? But that is the reality. If your health is a priority and the health of your family and the wellness and the food intake that you are going to take, then all your meals are going to require some type of prep, folks. That is the truth. I can't even sugarcoat it. Ooh, damn. Laura is dropping the hammer on, didn't I just feed you? I love it. (laughs) Well, I'm just saying like people expect, you know, like these things to be instant and they're not. Instant food is packaged food. So you can grab some healthier options. Like, you know, I know a lot of people do prep, like they have this fresh snack drawer in their fridge and they'll have like pre-baggied celery and carrots and hummus singles and, you know, like baggies of grapes. And that's awesome. And that's what I'm talking about. Like if you literally need to make lunch in 30 seconds, it can totally be a mishmash of, you know, grab and drop into a lunch bag. Listen, whatever makes your life easier. They sell pre-baggied apple slices and And carrots. Yeah. So the thing is, it's really whatever makes it easier on you to feed your kid the right foods that you'd want to feed your kid, right? I think that we get so busy and so overwhelmed with like the can't haves that we forget about all the things that are out there. And maybe it just requires a trip to the grocery store by yourself where you can have an hour and really check the labels and write down like your favorite brands and really explore what's available. You know, every back to school companies come out with new products to make these things easier on us. So just go to this, you know, maybe go to a couple grocery stores because they're not all the same, you know, like Trader Joe's doesn't sell the same thing as Whole Foods and Albertsons or Safeway or Costco, you know? So just see what's available so you can kind of make those routine purchases you know, the best choices for your family that are allergy friendly and you can have these things on hand. But yes, it will require a little bit of prep work. I like that. Can I can I jump in with sort of like an oddball question? Neither of my children have like a major food allergy, but I want to know like how can other parents in your classroom support you and your kids? I mean, it's, in some ways it's like really easy, right? If you if it's an allergy, like you just don't send peanut butter 
But what about if your kid has a dairy or an egg or a gluten allergy? And then it's like someone's birthday and the rest of the class is getting a treat, but maybe your kid isn't. Like, what do you want other parents to know about having a kid with food allergies in a classroom? Yeah. So I've experienced this um, when at the beginning of the year, I sent to or every couple of months, there's always like somebody's birthday, right? right. And pe- people bring cakes or muffins. The second year this happened, one of the teachers was really good about sending a birthday calendar list. So I knew when everybody's birthday was in the classroom. So I baked a batch of allergy-friendly cupcakes that my son could eat and I froze them individually. And so when it was someone's birthday, my son got a cupcake that I sent in his lunchbox and I sent it to school. So I had like a bunch of random frozen cupcakes in the freezer and I would just pull them out. I also had uh, gluten-free treats that were, you know, something packaged, but something that my son could eat while other kids were having like birthday cake or whatnot. So my son did not feel left out should I not know what the birthday calendar was, right? Um, The other thing is if you're making cupcakes for your child or a cake or something, I actually have a recipe on mamables.com for allergy-friendly chocolate cake that turns into amazing cupcakes. And it's free of like eggs, gluten, dairy, like yeah, all the top ones. So yes. Yeah. So it's really great. The other thing is if your child is quote the one with the allergies in the classroom, um, I parent did this, um, a couple of years back in my daughter and you know, right now my kids are homeschooled, but they do go to a place, uh, where there are other kids to learn. So it's almost like a classroom anyway, but in, um, in their previous school, one parent sent home a allergy friendly resource. Uh, she printed out this PDF with like treats and things in her favorite brands. So basically what we're talking about, this parent wrote down into a quick like Word document guide and she gave it to the teacher and then said, Hey, can I, can you email? But she sent an email to the teacher. So I got it as a Word document. And then she offered to print it out to any parent. So maybe if, if your child's the one with the allergies and you'd like other parents to sort of like comply or make it safer for your child, especially the nut ones, you can kind of maybe be the resource and gather like some recipes in, in a bunch of links or maybe put together a Pinterest board with these with these ideas and you can email the classroom a Pinterest board. Pretty Nowadays, parents are pretty connected. So I think, again, it being a resource for the other moms in the classroom who are probably going to be as overwhelmed as you were when you were about not how to pack their kids' lunch when you found out the news. And I have to say also as a parent who had a dairy-free kid for a long time in the classroom and also at birthday parties outside of the classroom, like Laura, I used to always make sure that Isaac had stuff at school that he could eat when there were celebrations. And at parties, I would have him bring his own cupcake so that I could make sure he had something to eat when everybody else was eating the cake, which surely had buttercream on it, which would make his tummy hurt terribly. But anytime a parent would just come to me and either ask me if they could do something to accommodate him or when they like spaced out about it or forgot and just were like, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't think about that. It was so, it made us feel so much better and it made Isaac feel thought of. So just being aware. And if you see, like if it's a birthday party, for example, as opposed to being in the classroom where you're present, 
if you see a parent pulling out a separate little treat, just going up to the kid or acknowledging it or acknowledging it to the parent is really nice because even if that kid has their own treat, psychologically, it's not the same and they feel it. Like, sure, he has his own cupcake that he still felt for a lot of years when he was little. Like, well, this is a bummer. Like, it's lame. Here I am with my dairy-free cupcake when everybody else is getting a slice of that cake that looks so much better. I have one last question because, Laura, I know that your kids are getting older. And do you pack lunch for all three of them still? Uh, every single one of them, even though okay, even when they don't go to their homeschool center, which I pack lunches every day. Okay. And are they, do you can plan to continue homeschooling them? Um, ongoing. So I, I asked them, that a hard, I know, it's really question. hard. I take it one year at a time. Okay. Um, but the, so this upcoming year we're going to homeschool our daughter so far is the only one that said she really wants to go to regular high school. So I'm, and she's entering seventh grade. So I'm really have like two more years to travel and do all the things that you see me do online um, in the middle of the school year, like I'm like, Oh my, I told my husband, like, Oh my gosh, we only have like two years left to get it all in. <laughs> anyway. So we just base, I pack lunches for three kids every single day. So I was wondering about high school. Cause I know that your oldest is, you know, quickly approaching that. I don't want to rush it, but mm. how do you prepare them for making safe and healthy choices? as they reach that point where they're going to start eating lunch and even, you know, other meals off on their own. Yeah. So these are conversations to be had from when your kids are younger and ongoing. But if you're just starting out and you're like, oh, my high schooler eats so much junk food, I don't know what to do. Number one, if I I have this 80-20 rule. So like 80% of the time your kid eats the food that you are purchasing for them with your money or around you or at home. So if 80% of the time you have the right ingredients at home, they're going to be eating the right things 80% of the time. Well, Laura, thank you so much for talking with us. We learned so much and actually way beyond food allergies because it's, it's true. I mean, these are lessons that go far beyond just what we can and cannot eat whether or not you have food allergies. It's just about like how to keep a balanced diet, no matter what works for your body across all of the meals. So we really appreciate you sharing all of your wisdom with us from your momables to the school lunch book, your food allergy book. How many? You have three books out already. Three books are out. I have one on lunches, another one on snacks, and another one on dinners. And my taco book is coming out in just a couple of weeks. Cannot wait. We'll be sharing that, of course. Thank you. Today's episode of Didn't I Just Feed You is brought to you by our sponsor, Elmhurst, a brand you'll find if you peek in my very own pantry. Their plant-based milks have more nutrition and whole grains than other leading brands and are made without gums, emulsifiers, or carrageenan because simple doesn't have to mean less. Use promo code HUNGRY to get 20% off your next purchase at elmhurst1925.com. And lastly, we spoke with Chef Jenny Dorsey, and I was so excited that Jenny agreed to be on our podcast because she has a totally different perspective. And that's, you know, that's what we're all about here And Didn't I Just Feed You, just getting like a 360 point of view on stuff. 
She is a professional chef and an artist based in New York City. She specializes in fusing culinary arts with social concepts and emerging technology, especially AR and VR, which makes her sound fancy. And you know what, Megan? She is fancy, right? She She really is. We loved her. She runs an experimental pop-up series named Wednesdays, and she's also a podcast co-host. We love that of a podcast called Why Food that airs on Heritage Radio Network. She's also starting a culinary production studio named ATAO. We should have asked her that. Studio. We should. Yeah, Studio ATAO. Studio ATAO. I think it's ATAO. Sorry, Jenny. We love you still. You can find out more about her at JennyDorsey.co. Jenny, so nice to have you on Didn't I Just Feed You. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, so we have been talking about school lunch. Um, (laughs) Do you have kids, by the way? I don't. Okay, so I kind of guessed that, but I don't know where I got that from. Just sort of a gut feeling. (laughs) Not yet, at least. Not yet. But you did this, uh, what I think is a really amazing and thought-provoking series on Instagram, Exploring Privilege, that I want you to talk to us a little bit about. And one of the photos in the series was a school lunch photo. And we'll have a link to it so that people can go to it. A lot of your work on Instagram, I think of as art and not just culinary art. I think you're exploring entitlement and cultural appropriation. So I want you to just sort of jump in and talk to us a little bit about the series and how in the world school lunch came to be a topic through which you were exploring these themes. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Privilege has been this series that I've wanted to do for a while, but couldn't quite figure out, you know, what privilege is such a wide topic, like what pieces of it I wanted to talk about and also do it in a way that is authentic. I think, you know, I also have plenty of privilege myself. So it'd be very silly of me to say like, oh, well, look at how I've struggled in these areas that I haven't really struggled in. So how do I focus on the things that um, I think are relevant to other people, but also I can pull from my own history and t- be able to talk about the balance of like the privileges I do have versus the privileges I don't have and kind of take a more objective view of those things. Part one of the series was about wealth. And it it's just talks about how many times we think about oh, our own wealth in comparison to those wealthier than us. And we're like, oh, well, they can do this. They can afford this. They're um, able to eat this or go quit their job and et cetera. But um, a lot of times, especially when it pertains to food, we don't even realize how privileged we are in what we get to eat and how we get to just access to food in general. Um, I was reading this fascinating article, for instance, from the, I think it was the Wall Street Journal, about how when you are a a privileged um, mother and you are buying groceries for your children, when you buy something, let's say like bitter vegetables for your children and they don't eat them the first time, but someone else eats them, like your husband or your wife or your mother or father who's staying with you, then you call that, you know, like a groceries for the day. You don't even think about it. But if you're in a less privileged position, you buy that for your kid to eat. If he or she doesn't eat it, then that's considered a waste. And then you just don't buy it again. So that was the first part of the series. Um, But the second part, I think what we're more focusing on today is um, about the privilege of race. And I think growing up Asian American in this country, I was born in China, but I came here when I was three. So I'm pretty much just all American, you know, 
when my Chinese family sees me, they say I'm an ABC, an American-born Chinese. <laughs> uh, it doesn't actually matter where I was born. You know, it's just I think it's more like yeah. a mannerism thing. But growing up and feeling like I didn't really have a voice in how my culture was interpreted, how my culture's food was interpreted, it was always just how other people felt about it, and I kind of had to withstand the brunt of that. Whether it was good, like bad when I was growing up, you know, the things I was eating was really gross. But now some of those things are really cool and trendy. And now totally. everyone's like, oh, you know, Chinese food, this Chinese food, that this is the secret to Chinese food. And um, I didn't have a voice in any of that. And kind of I think a lot of Asian Americans can really empathize with feeling like they're always this like bystander. Um, they can't provide context and they're kind of just waiting and hoping that the tide will essentially turn for their own um, their own culture, which is really unfair and also a really difficult thing to grapple with as you're growing up and trying to figure out your own identity and how you want to present yourself to the world. That's so interesting. And I know we are focusing on school lunch today, but I just think what you brought up about class and wealth is so important. And it's something that I've talked about a lot because in the space where Megan and I operate, there's so much talk about picky eating. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's something that we repeat all the time that kids need exposure to foods upwards of 12 times before they can accept a new flavor. Exactly. But that costs money. Mm -hmm. And time. (laughs) When you're talking, you know, to a single mom who has a tiny budget for food and several mouths to feed, well, she may not be able to afford to buy some fresh, bitter vegetable, you know, broccoli rob. Right that costs a lot and has a completely different flavor profile than her children are used to yep. 12 times and toss it in the garbage. Right. Exactly. You know, so that that's a real, that's a consideration that many people in our space don't even think about when they're doling out advice mm-hmm. on how to cope with picky eating and healthier, how to foster healthier eating habits. And there's an age, I mean, I don't know for, uh, from personal experience, but from what I've seen of uh, my friends who have kids, there is an age where you can't really argue with them and say like, this is what you have, eat it, right? When they get older, you can kind of say that, but when they're three or four or five, like you have to make them something to eat. They're just going to be hungry. Yeah. And bringing it back to schools, what's so interesting is that I had worked with um, Alice Waters um, Edible Schoolyard Mm -hmm. in New York City a couple of times. And they have found over and over that when you can change children's opinions of food by introducing foods at school in the school context where kids can kind of influence each other and maybe they get exposure from garden to plate because they've helped plant the seeds at the beginning of the school year Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. then in the spring they're harvesting and then they get experience cooking then they go home and they say, oh, I tried Swiss chard today, you know, and it was actually not so bad. Can yeah. we go buy that? Parents are relieved. Like, yeah, of course we'll go buy that. <laughs> you know, they're just not going to buy it when they have such a small budget and they're not sure their kids are going to eat it. They need to buy a sure thing because yeah. they can't afford not to buy a sure thing. Yeah. So that's where schools can really, really make an impact. But going back to packing school lunches... <laughs> So did you, did your parents pack your school lunch and were they packing Chinese food? Yeah, absolutely. They were packing me lunch for the most part. My, my, both my parents are scientists. And when they first um, came to the U.S., they had no money. They were students. 
Um, and I, they had to kind of make sure that we were all fed. And so I wasn't, uh, I was on subsidized school lunch, but I couldn't actually like, afford the subsidized school lunch. Mm-hmm. So um, I was able to like buy some milk at school. I think that was like the main thing I was allowed. Um, sometimes I would splurge and buy the chocolate milk. But most of the time, I just ate what my mom and dad had packed me, uh, mostly my mom. And I didn't really notice, I think, when I was really young, you know, kindergarten to probably like third grade, I think kids are just a little kinder then because you're so young. You're kind of like eating your own thing and doing whatever, and nobody really says anything. But as you start getting older and, you know, uh, it's not abnormal for preteens and teens to kind of be exploring the boundaries of what they can say, what they can't say, you know, figuring out what nice and mean means in context to who they are is yep. when a lot of bad behavior and bullying and all of that starts to happen. And as I got into that age too, what used to be kind of a non-issue of eating lunch at school with my friends um, became this huge issue because everybody would be like, oh, that's so gross, or it smells, or it looks like this, and it's icky. Everybody else was eating either the school lunch or Lunchables, you know, and school lunch is like corn dogs and um, chicken tenders <laughs> and mashed potatoes and pizza. It's all like awful things that you don't want to feed your kids anymore. (laughs) But at the same time, for the children, that was seen as like, what was the the cool thing to eat? Um, And there were many times where series of uh, weeks um, where I was so embarrassed, I would either throw my lunch away and I'd be really hungry, or I would eat in the bathroom or I, I would, you know, eat really quickly before anyone kind of showed up. And at some point, I just started like telling my mom, like, no, I have to eat lunch I, I refuse to eat any of your food which I'm sure was really hard for her to hear we definitely yelled at each other about it multiple times but like she didn't understand where I was coming from and I didn't understand where she was coming from and it's so interesting because I feel like it never occurred to me until this conversation that there are so many different ways that you can try to assimilate as a kid mm-hmm. you know and then you open your school lunch right <laughs> And if there's these, you know, I'm first generation Greek and, you know, if there's like feta cheese in there, I don't know, smell is such a strong sense for me. Yep. Right. And it's like, if there's feta cheese or these stinky things, a lot of seafood too, yeah. Yeah. like this leftover or like pastizo was something my grandmother oh, used yeah, to make. So good. Mm-hmm. It's so good. And actually that doesn't smell, but it was like, it looked yeah. Mushy. Sure. And everyone's like, what is that? Is right. that dog food? Yes. I got that too. A lot of that. <laughs> oh my God. And, and it's funny because now, you know, people, I hope more people, even kids would recognize some of those things. But back then it was like this foreign alien thing. And for whatever reason, you, when your kids see that it's somehow bad instead of just being like, oh, that's different, you know? And that's like a, mentality thing. I think parents have to teach their children. Yeah. And it was like a giveaway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was like, ah. Uh. And I mean, for me, even more so because I'm white. So it was like, you know, like I'm passing if I had the right, right. clothes. <laughs> no one yeah. knows that my parents are immigrants. And then I open my lunch and it's like, ah, oh, damn. Yeah, I gave myself away. <laughs> Here <Yeah>. we go. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so it can be really intense. And now it's like we pack seaweed snacks mm-hmm. for our kids. <laughs> yeah. I was talking to a Middle Eastern woman and she was saying how, 
you know, she ate a lot of hummus. Um, and that was before right. it was cool. And people were like, what is that? It's like, I mean, if you look at it objectively, I guess it's kind of like a beige <laughs> color. Yes. And but we all know what that is now. But like when she was growing up, everybody was like, ew, like, ooh, like that looks like paint or something. And that's yeah. horrible. Like, it's horrible to hear that from other people. And it's also it's it kind of makes me feel like there's something wrong with you. Yeah, it's funny. Like hummus is one of our number one recommendations. <laughs> it's high in protein. Kids love it. Yeah, you can add <laughs> a lot so of flavors. Easy. Yeah. Do you have any resentment over how it's changed? Oh, that's an interesting question. I was going to say, ask Jenny if it made her feel more connected and proud of her Chinese heritage now that those things are cool. Or I would say like, I look back and I feel really proud about it. It was I, I guess I don't feel proud of the way I probably handled things with my family because there were so many screaming matches and like me giving kind of non-answers as to why I didn't want to eat their food anymore. But looking back as an adult now, most of my Asian American friends have similar stories and it is a point of bonding and kind of understanding where we came from and, you know, how far we've come in terms of acceptance and integration into American society and feeling like finally American kids and American people are recognizing that there's one, not just one face of what America looks like and kind of feeling like it's a little bit of like a, oh, good. Like I, I see, I see the progress. Also kind of a reminder, I haven't started having kids yet, but some of my friends who have, I, I think that for them, it's like, oh, well, I experienced this as a child. I want to make sure that my children have a better worldview in terms of how they interact with their peers. You know, you can't ha make sure that your kid has every, um, like has seen every type of food ever before they reach the third grade. That's kind of impossible. So eventually when they are, they encounter something that they're, they don't recognize that their internal state is just, oh, that's a, that's a, such an interesting thing. I want to learn more about it. I want to ask questions about it instead of turning their noses and being really grossed out and putting other people down. In the school context and when you're, you know, at school packing lunches, having um, school fairs, and you're trying to introduce kids to other cultures, food is such a wonderful concrete way to do that. Do you have thoughts on how to do it without crossing into appropriation or being reductive? Yeah, that's a tough one. I was just reading um, an article somewhere about, I think it was a high school that they started serving like Vietnamese bombies and it was like completely wrong, essentially. Like they got the baguette right, but then like everything inside of it was wrong. And there was like hot contention between the Asian kids at school as to like if this was actually good or bad. Because on one hand, now kids like, recognize this sandwich, I guess, that they haven't seen before, but just understand they see it in a completely wrong light. And then they actually think that it's something that it's not. And that's their first impression of something, which is like, it's always difficult to shake your first impression of food or people or, you know, whatever pieces of your life. Um, so I, I understand like how complicated this issue is, because on the one hand for schools, we have a huge problem in this country where schools just don't get enough funding. So it's hard enough to, for them to apparently put, you know, just normal good food on the menu, like just like a nice bowl or something with grains in it, much less buy all these kind of niche ingredients yeah. for one specific cultural dish that they may be wanting to make. I, I would posit that the best solution for schools is to focus on one dish they want to do well and try to do it as best they can. And then instead of trying to spread their resources and have like 
you know, one day where we make authentic Mexican food, cool, cool, authentic Mexican food, and a Vietnamese food, and Chinese food, and French food, and like, because they're just going to spread their resources so thin. So maybe it's like one special dish that they, they do once every four months, but they do it really well versus having a couple dishes that are really, really mediocre. I love that. I think that's really, really smart. And I also really like when in elementary schools, classroom teachers and the school administration call on families. Oh, yes. Yeah, I agree. Right? Because then you also make it really concrete and really local. And, you know, families are really tend to be really good about saying, well, this is what we do in our home. These are our family traditions. And I think that's really great for the younger set also. Yeah. And I also think that if we had that more regularly, instead of like, a, I don't know how frequently your kids are having this at school, but I remember show and tell is really only happening every few months. Um, if it was like a weekly thing during lunch where kids were bringing home, bringing some stuff just for their class, you know, it doesn't have to be in the whole school. That's like a little too much to ask for a working mom. But um, just for, you know, like 10 or 15 people to get them, it doesn't have to be the whole lunch, but maybe just like a little piece. If that was like a regular thing, that could be a really interesting way for the kid to feel proud of themselves and also for other people to be fed. I think that's so great. I think that's a really great idea that hopefully some teachers can adopt. Maybe some teachers listening will do that this year. (laughs) Who knows? Um, Can I ask a purely practical question? Yeah. I have a six-year-old who is starting first grade and um, I want to equip her with some questions to ask or the right way to approach her other friends because she has a large immigrant population in her school Mm -hmm. um, about like when she sees something in someone's lunchbox and she's curious about it, like how can she ask politely? Like how would you have wanted the kids in your class to ask little Jenny about what was in her lunchbox? I mean, I think generally speaking, until you've had like a bad experience as a kid, you're pretty like, you're like a pretty open, happy child, I would like to think. And so if another child comes to you, looks at your lunchbox and says, hmm, I haven't had that before. What does it taste like? Or what is it? You know, you don't, I think now I'm more jaded. If someone asks me what that is, I'm like, oh, like, what do they mean? But if I were six and someone just asked me what that is, I'd be like, oh, this is, I don't know, pork ribs or this is garlic chives. I think I would have just answered kind of that face value. And I think it's more the the tone and the way it's delivered. If instead of being like, oh, what is that? Versus, oh, what is this? I haven't seen it before. That's interesting. I think more likely than not, kids will be simply just be like, oh, it's X. You want to try some? Here's some. I think just kind of leaving, leaving these open-ended questions because realistically, she's not going to know tons of context to ask more specific questions. Um, just like, letting her ask kind of vague questions, letting the other person answer. She can follow up with a few questions or simply just like be a good listener. I think that's all I really wanted was someone to listen and feel like, you know, my culture was important enough for them to like want to hear more about. And then just this whole idea of, you know, come from a place of curiosity, be a good listener, don't yuck each other's yums. (laughs) You know, it's like, (laughs) there's just like three big, principles that, you know, you can take with you that honestly, just like your work, Jenny, and just like your Instagram series and what drew Megan and I to you in the first place, these principles really go beyond school lunch 
and really beyond food and are so applicable to life today in America and what I think we could all be doing with each other in general. Yeah. I think the big thing is just recognizing that it's totally your prerogative to feel certain ways or um, to be different from other people. But how do you how do you do so respectfully? And also, how do you acknowledge that being different is good and that you can be friends with people who have different opinions and different lunches and like different things than yourself? Yes. And what a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much for joining us. Of course. This was Thank a you. great, great conversation. And I hope we can have you back. Yes, I would love to. It's awesome. Thank you. Jenny's interview was possibly life-changing for me, not only giving me a different perspective on my own childhood lunch as a, a child of a single parent who was trying to feed us on a budget. And, you know, I sort of poked fun at the lunches she used to send me in previous episodes that they were just like the same thing every week, the potato chips, the peanut butter and jelly. And I really had a moment listening to Jenny talk about income disparity and, and how that affects how we eat as we grow up and our palates as we get older. And, you know, I really think my mom probably struggled with the school lunch budget and it was probably really painful for her that we didn't eat it. And I also loved how Jenny just gave us really practical advice about teaching our kids kindness from a cultural perspective during school lunch. My six-year-old is going to be in first grade next week at a very diverse school. And I'm sure that she's going to see things in other people's lunch boxes that are not familiar to her. And so this week's Try This at Home is as much homework for me as it is for all of you. But I'm going to have a conversation with my daughter about school lunch and how to appropriately ask other kids about the things that, that are in their lunchbox so that there can be a cultural exchange without hurting feelings and ostracizing other kids at the lunch table. Stacey, how do you think you would approach that with your older boys? I love that. So, you know, not yucking someone else's yum is like that phrase is something that we have talked about a lot at home. It was a phrase that was used in our old school when Isaac was really, really little. You know, Isaac, at the end of last year, because of his like crazy GI and diet issues, which I haven't talked about yet on the podcast, but it will surely come up. He had to spend like three weeks taking his lunch to middle school because he was on such a strict diet called the FODMAP diet. Look it up. It's insane. Like he couldn't have onions or garlic or blah, blah, blah. And he has a cafeteria there. And I got really worried for the first time in a long time of someone else yucking his yum, <laughs> you know, even at 11 years old. And it wasn't about, you know, culture or bringing in, you know, f Greek food. It was really just about like him having to adhere to this different diet and like not belonging. And it really resonated with me what Jenny was saying in our conversation about how food becomes this kind of signal for who belongs and who doesn't belong. And it's this signal that we don't really, we're not really aware of, or we don't think about. And you think you've created this nice, inclusive environment. And then all of a sudden someone opens up their lunchbox and it's like, wait, what? What do you have there? I think not yucking each other's yum is still a relevant conversation for older kids, even at the most basic level. 
it's a really good reminder as they go back to school. And also, I think as they become more aware of how big the world is, thinking about what Jenny was saying, instead of the school being in charge of introducing new cuisines and trying to take on too much like Taco Tuesday and, you know, whatever Wednesdays, actually going slow and doing it right and looking to families and friends who are from a particular country and asking them about their food so that you get a, um, I know authentic is a really like a no-no word in our industry, right? Because what does authentic mean? But getting it from someone who has known and lived the food, you know, and yeah, not just maybe thinking- it's better to say- just a personal perspective. Yes. It's more intimate. Yeah. yeah. Like Taco Tuesday doesn't mean you know Mexican food, dudes. You know what I mean? Right. And so like if your school has Taco Tuesday, that's awesome. And that might get you excited to eat a healthy lunch that has some like tomatoes and vegetables. But like just being aware of what your cafeteria is serving your older kids and kind of talking to them about it. That like tacos are awesome, but they're also not necessarily real Mexican food. Yeah. And maybe taking it one step further and going to a place that serves real tacos from different regions and talk about, you know, this is like a Mexican style taco. This is a Spanish style style taco. Um, There's a lot. And actually that gets me really excited to explore in, in Boise, Idaho, where I live, we have a huge Basque culture and there's this Basque (gasps) block and there's all this like really beautiful cultural exchange there. And they have paella cook-offs and they share um, with the community and kind of inspires me to get more involved in that so that my kids can learn more about the culture that's around them. Totally. I love that. So these are really good takeaways that I think work from like very little preschool kids all the way through high school. Love it. Love it. And a good jumping off point because I think next week's episode is about dining out with kids. It is. Because how fun is that? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Our first listeners. We love you. Yay. Sound effect. Round of applause. (laughs) Make sure that you subscribe to Didn't I Just Feed You on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you loved this episode, please be sure to write us a review on iTunes. And also share this with your other friends, especially the parents in your life, because you know we all need each other. Have something you want us to cover? Have questions? Email us at hello at didn'tijustfeedyou.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at didn't I just feed you. And if you're looking for show notes or any information about upcoming episodes, visit didn'tijustfeedyou.com. Big thank you to our listeners. Our music is Good Old Times by Alex Cohen, provided by Giamento. This is Megan. And this is Stacy. Stay sane and well-fed until next week.